Communicating spiritually to dead dogs for seeking political advice might sound like an utterly bizarre idea, but Argentina's fate hinges on these very canines as Javier Milik, the psychic dead dog communicator, emerges as the biggest winner in Argentina's primary elections. He taught economics and authored several books. In fact, he was a rock singer and his band named Everest mainly covered Rolling Stone songs. He says it's super easy to dollarize Argentina. This would end the fraud of the peso. He believes that Argentina's central bank is the worst garbage that exists on this earth. He has some interesting takes about a whole lot of things. While global leaders, scientists and businessmen are breaking their heads over finding solutions for climate change, he dismisses it as just another socialist agenda. According to him, abortion is also a much darker side of the same agenda. Continuing the series of explosive comments, he recently denounced Pope Francis as an imbecile and representative of evil. He calls China an assassin. In a recent interview, he said that he doesn't cut deals with communists. Welcome back to Why Are We Like This, the podcast that treats Florida like the active crime scene it is. My name, David Quinones. I am your host. As usual, I am joined by my co-host, Tomas Kennedy. Hello, Tomas. Hey, how are you? Trying Hi. to get in touch with my roots here with this podcast today. <laughs> this episode's going to be a good one. Yeah. A very Tomas is right, right in his wheelhouse. Uh, and of course, if Tomas is here, that means that I am also joined by my co-host, uh, Gerald Doherty. Hello, Gerald. Hello. How are you? Good. Fresh, fresh back from Sin City. Yes, uh, won't discuss. Yeah. But I didn't do any sins. It's supposed I, to stay I was there. a good boy. Yes. <laughs> so we've got a great episode lined up today. There are a few new developments in the shady, bankrupt world of Florida property insurance, and we're going to be joined by Lawrence Maurer from the Tampa Bay Times, who's going to sh- talk all about that with us. But first, we want to welcome Hernan Reyes, public opinion analyst in Buenos Aires, who's here to talk to us a little bit about he and Tomas's shared homeland. And it's a current uh, chaotic, less than perfect uh, political situation <laughs> for our first. Well, welcome, Hernan. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for calling me. <laughs> for our first topic, we are heading a continent away to the country that gave us my least favorite Spanish accent and my favorite foreign born uh, podcast co-host. Tomas, <laughs> Tomas's homeland, Argentina, which is uh, facing a crucial, <laughs> facing a crucial upcoming presidential election on November nineteenth. This will be the second round of elections and will determine the country's president. For the Peronist party, uh, Sergio Massa, Argentina's center-left economy minister, who has overseen an economy that has a nearly one hundred and forty percent annual inflation right now. Uh, his opponent is somebody you've probably heard a lot about in, in U.S. media, uh, Javier Milei a radical right-wing libertarian who draws comparisons to Donald Trump and who had, who has hopes uh, to become the first ever elected world leader who is also surrounded by a phalanx of cloned bull mastiffs, which is a real thing. I did not make that up. That's actually true. Uh, so things are going great. In, in the recent first-round election, we like uh, Miley came in second to Massa, but neither had enough vote to avoid a runoff. Yesterday came news that the now eliminated candidate, Patricia Bullrich from the center-right coalition of parties, has endorsed Millet, uh, despite his accusation that she blew up kindergartens as a young leftist guerrilla. Um, so for some context, Florida, there's a Florida peg, guys. Uh, we have about 30% of the U.S. Argentine population, population 57,260 I guess 57,259 now that Tomas is gone uh, and left us to go to New York. Tomas Hernan, what's going on in Argentina? Uh, uh, Tomas, you very recently wrote about this, so I'll, I'll let you sort of um, lead us into this topic in a much more knowledgeable way than I can. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm going to let Hernan uh, speak at it more in length, but 
basically, you know, after years of uh, discontent uh, due to an imploding economy that, in my opinion, uh, was uh, triggered and caused by the uh, the government of Mauricio Macri in the mid 2010s, you know, the IMF loan that they um, acquired the biggest IMF loan in human history that we are now on the hook for and the uh, neoliberal bu business friendly policies that they enacted. Uh, the base, basically the chickens are coming home to roost and the current government hasn't been able to stabilize the ship due to, you know, COVID and other, um, you know, things getting in the way. So, you know, we have a lot of the population that's basically trying to throw a grenade at the system and we're in the danger of uh, supporting this guy, Javier Millet, who, you know, wants to revert back to a lot of the policies of the 90s of the Carlos Menem presidency. Uh, he says that was the best presidency that Argent in Argentina's history. And this is a guy that at the time pegged the value of the peso to the dollar, right? Um, basically, that left us uh, vulnerable to market pressures from other countries. And, uh, you know, in the, in the mid 90s, uh, because of economic crises of in, in Asia, in Mexico, and in other areas of the world uh, that impacted the, the, um, the economy of Argentina, ultimately resulting in a massive bank run in the late 90s uh, and an economic implosion that led to an exodus of Argentina fleeing from the country, including myself. So Javier Mille looks at this, what happened in the 90s, and he says, not only do I want to go back to that, I want to go further. <laughs> so his main promise is basically that he is going to dollarize Argentina's economy, right? And he wants to do that without having sufficient dollar reserves in order to undertake that, right? So, you know, I'll leave it at that, Hernan. I'm, I'm curious about your opinion, um, but, you know, it's just a, a really insane uh, presidency uh, that's proposing things that are un that are not just unfeasible, but if they are somehow feasible, they're gonna end in you know hardship and a red thread of the of the of the past for Argentinians. Well, um, what Tomas um, says, he points out, is absolutely right. Um, however, what I must add is that um, Javier Millet's support does not come from his um, from his proposals. Um, what, what I'm trying to say is he um, finds support basically from his um, charisma and his positioning as an outsider. Um, let's remember that Argentina until 1983 um, has undergone um, constant inter inter interruptions to its democracy. And so it's had um, uh, uh, uninterrupted democracy since 1983, and since then, um, the economy has been really uh, on a down 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 spiral. So, um, the we have a bipartisan system, much more much more like in the United States, where you had Democrats and Republicans. Here we had um, Peronists and the U.S. UCR until 2001, when the whole system collapsed. And, and it, it um, turned into a two coalition system. And these two coalitions had both 
their turn to govern Argentina, and both of them basically had increased poverty. So in 1976, Argentina had the same um, degree of inequality, which is measured in the, you know, in the Gini coefficient, as France. And now we have the same basically inequality as Peru. So the, the, the social degradation of um, our society has um, created a very um, a society that's very frustrated with democracy and what democracy has promised them. So in terms, in technical terms, democracy functions very well. People go, they vote, there's no fraud. Um, however, in terms of its um, delivery, the political system has failed to deliver to the people what bas the basics, you know, an economy that mostly works, that um, that that's um, permissible, that, 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 that makes, uh, um, it's very, I think that what what's, there are two um, feelings that coexist now. One, um, the need for change, and the other one, the need for stability. And both of these um, feelings um, are which, basically what, what, what we are going to vote for in the next election. So, so Tomas is completely right about Millet, um, but what I'm, his, his, his show politics, mm -hmm. it's all, he, he, it's a candidate that comes from um, television, uh, from social media, you know, the, it's the, basically TikTok won in that mm -hmm. respect, right? Gerald, this sounds so very familiar. there's no real profound debates. This yeah. sounds very yeah. familiar. This, I mean, like, I, it's, I understand now, I, 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 I realize that, like, over the course of the last seven years, uh, whenever somebody bombastic would come onto any international political scene, everybody everybody would say, oh, he's, you know, Brazil's Donald Trump. He is Mexico's Donald Trump. But yeah. this, the, 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 the comparisons seem very apt in this case, um, that this is a guy who has seemingly come out of nowhere for those of us who who uh like casually follow international politics he, this was not a name that i that i had in my head a year ago why is that where did where did he seem where did he come from and why why is that ascent apparently seemed to be so quick is it just like media or like what's the cause of well it? he's very charismatic he's very charismatic he's um some some people call him like a rock star because you know his his hairstyle um, he's very, um, he doesn't, he's, he's very politically incorrect. Um, and so the youth, basically, which is the, 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 where he dry, derives most of his support, take him as a rebel. So he has positioned himself as a rebel in terms of political um, ideology. So, uh, and the, and the, young, young, the youth, um, they don't know what happened in 1990s. They don't know what happened in 2001 when the government collapsed. They just they just see this rock star that wants to break everything up, and and they kind of um, relate to that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny because I actually titled my article "Argentina's on the verge of electing its own Donald Trump," and I kind of did that for the clickbait and to sort of like build a relationship with the American viewer, right? Yeah. But I actually think he's very different from Donald Trump in a way that Donald Trump doesn't really have an ideology, right? I mean, he's obviously like a fascist and a grifter, but I don't think he's like academically has an ideology. I think Javier Millet, even though I think a lot of, you know, he has plagiarized a lot of his work and 
I, I think you know his his economic theory is really poor, and he just kind of like says things you know really fast and loudly, and just kind of runs over opponents, and it's very incorrect. He does have an ideology, right, Hernan? I mean, he's a very strict anarcho-capitalist, uh, uh, you know, libertarian. I mean, he says think crazy things. Like, you know, you know, he was being interviewed, and he said, "When I am president." we are going to cut trade relations with Brazil and China because they're communist. And I, in principle, will not trade with communists. Now, this is significant because Brazil and China are Argentina's biggest right. trading partners or our biggest socioeconomic partners. So it would be a fucking disaster to cut relationships with them. He says that he would remove Argentina from Mercosur, which is sort of like a free trade agreement uh, in in the in the south in, in South America um, that allows you know for like like an economic understanding between these countries that have relatively similar wealth. He's and it would be there's legitimate criticism there, but it would be disastrous to just pull Argentina out of that. It would it would really leave us at a disadvantage. He says that he'll just pull us out because Mercosur is a, is a taxing entity and he is fundamentally opposed to taxes. You, you don't see Trump saying things like that, right? That he's like, well, I'm ideologically opposed to taxes because of my libertarianism. And it's just, yeah, so it, it's it's a very bizarre individual. And like Hernan said, I don't think that like a majority of Argentinians just woke up one day and they're like, we're a narco-capitalist libertarian, <laughs> right? They're just fucking angry at the system. And this guy says... Fuck the politicians, and a lot of people feel they, they identify with that. It's more of a Pepe thing. Could, they, there's not really a you know, ideology. It's more just like fuck that. We have a, a very very similar divide, like you have in the in the United States, where you have um, Democrats proposing more government spending and Republicans always proposing um, tax cuts. And, and here we also have that a similar divide in terms of. And so Millet um, is going all about um, government um, cutting cutting on government spending and and we have a very very strong um, um, welfare system in Argentina um, university is free um, the health system is healthcare is free um, and so for us that it's very very part of um, our identity and and so I think at the end people be realized that all these um, acquired rights, uh, social rights, were in danger. And I think that's what's at stake now. I was just going to say, it, listening to Tomas talk about Malay's program, his ideas are even worse when you combine them together. Because one, one of the things I learned about reading in your article, Tomas, is that pegging the peso to the dollar made it very hard to pivot to like within um, negative external shocks to the economy. I can't think of anything that would produce a bigger negative external shock to the economy than amputating trade relations with your number one and number two trading partner just because you don't like the cut of their political jib anymore. Um, but also in your article, I was struck by um, uh, the hyperinflate, like the 114, I think, percent uh, inflation rate. I, just a hypothetical question. It, do you think the attraction to dollarizing the economy is just as simple as if you've lost faith in the peso let's just replace 
the peso, which I understand to someone who's young might sound, it sounds like a solution to a problem if you don't think about it for longer than like two seconds. Well, our mindset is very um, dollarized. <laughs> Historically, we okay. save in dollars, we think in dollars, we buy houses in dollars. We always, we're always, since we're kids, we are following what's the value of the dollar, which changes every day. So Argentina, um, and, and also the lack of um, dollars is one of the, the most important economic restrictions we usually have. Uh, and so we have, and, and, and this is because we have a, a very um, complex um, dilemma between um, the, the help, help me out here, Tomas, but the, the farming part of the country, the exporting agricultural, um, yeah. which, which, yeah, which they, they, they want high, the dollar to be high and the peso to be low because it's, it's in, uh, for their advantage. And the industrial sector that wants a, a dollar at a low value because they need to buy machinery and so forth. And so they, they need a dollar to be low. So um, the dollar has always been important to us. And in this moment where the peso has lost so much value for most people who don't understand what it means in, term, in terms of loss of sovereignty, they feel it's a, it's a very drastic and possible solution. Yeah. I want to add something, Gerald, about what you said in terms of, you know, the, the, the cutting of relations between our two biggest trading yeah. partners. So Hernan talked about it briefly that, we you know, we've had democracy in Argentina since 1983. Uh, from the mid-70s to, 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 to the early 1980s, we had this military dictatorship that was brutal. They disappeared over 30,000 people accused of having communist sympathies, including family members of mine. And it's a real stain in our legacy. Millet's vice president, uh, and Millet himself to a degree, is very an uh, apologist of this era. And they actually deny the well-documented fact that over 30,000 people um, were disappeared. But just to highlight how extreme this cutting of relations proposal is with China and Brazil, at the time, Videla, who was the leader of the first leader of the military junta that led Argentina, Argent they were strict anti-communists. I mean, if you were a communist in, in Argentina at the time, you you're in a real risk of being murdered, as I told you. Argentina actually had excellent relationships with the Soviet Union at the time. And that was because, you know, they prioritized the diplomacy and economic stability. And that's not they were not communist sympathizers by any means, as I told you. But we've gone to a place where the military junta at the time would be it's willing to, to trade with like communists in that era to a, a fucking maniac that's just saying, well, me personally, I don't agree with these people. So therefore, their state machinery is going to cut relationships with Brazil, who's like, you know, our neighbor next door. It's a, a absolute insanity. Hernan, I wanted to ask because you know you talk about this sort of like bipartisan uh, dynamic that we have in our uh, in Argentinian politics, and and we're living in a weird moment, right? Where I, I kind of in a way see it as as what Bolsonaro did in Brazil, that he like sort of imploded the traditional Brazilian right, right? When he came into office, kind of absorbed absorbed some of these like former traditional right-wing elements. There was like a, a, a small right-wing opposition to Bolsonaro that eventually ditched them. 
What do you think is going to happen to the Juntos for El Cambio coalition, which is the center-right coalition that you initially talked about, has been traditionally there for the last 20 years? Because their candidate is is out of the runoff, right? I mean, what's going to happen with that? And how is the right wing going to reorganize themselves? You know, are we going to have a, this bipartisan dynamic or not? Well, that's a that's a mystery. I wish I, I knew I could I, and I could answer the question for you, Tomas. But um, it, we're in the middle of that process, and I think the UCR, la UCR, the what we call it here, um, which is a, a mostly a centrist um, 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 political party that has always been the opposition to the Peronist party, um, has an opportunity now to to rebuild its identity because what we have here is that the, the both. The, the main political um, coalitions, I think what Millet is forcing them to do is also to renovate their, not only their, their, their discourses, which are, are, are all in, in both cases antiquated, um, because as much as I tend to agree more with the Peronist um, party, their ideas are, which are um, anchored in, in Perón, which was, at, at um, the government in the 1940s are very, very antiquated in today's um, technologically driven economy. And so I think what Millet is forcing them to do is also, it's a renovation of both coalitions. And I, I really don't know how this is going to end. If Peronism wins, it probably won't have as much pressure to, to, um, to do this, but the UCR which is a part of Juntos por el Cambio, has now a chance to um, become more independent and go back to its roots. And, and how do you see the election shaping up on November 19th, right? I mean, so you had Patricia Bullrich endorse Millet. Uh, you have a, a huge segment of the population, about 50-something, voting for right-wing candidates and about 30-something, you know, maybe 40 with Bregman and Ciaretti voting for um, Massa. Do you, do you think that it's possible for Massa to overcome and, and win this runoff? I think um, it is possible basically um, because Massa has um, positioned himself as a centrist. So he's in the middle of the political, on the, of the ideological spectrum right now. He's um, someone that's prone um, to to dialogue with other with the other parties and Argentina needs um, to have uh, dialogue with other with the other parties in order to build um, long term um, policies and Millet he has positioned himself at the far right so now he has to go for the independent voters and he's forced to move to the center and that's much more difficult for him because he has gone to such an extreme that he's going to um, lose identity if he changes too much in, in the next few weeks. So now he's, he's showing himself as, as very desperate to go for all the you know, votes he can. He even offered the, the leftist party a seat in the government, which they laughed at, fortunately. You're talking about um, Miriam Bregman's folks? Yes, yes. <laughs> I didn't even know that. So can, yeah. can I ask yeah. can I ask uh, a question that kind of ties two things together that I noticed when I was researching for this episode? One of them is uh, a lot of the social media discourse in Spanish, apparently, apparently in the country, 
seems to suggest that well, these are just people, and again, the, on, on Twitter and on, on social media, and obviously they might be full of shit, as we say here in the United States. Um, th- but a lot of them seem to be saying when they looked at the, uh, the, er- the first round voting, not to look at voting for the candidate individually, but rather that all of the votes that were for Bullrich and uh, for uh, Milai were against the Peronist Party. This is a vote against the status quo. And so these people, again, seem to be very, I guess, certain that those votes will translate over to to uh, to Milay. But I, I was reading about this Bullrich person, the, the Bullrich, um, uh, Bullrich, the political um, entity, and I, I was reading about her background, and she seemed to be a firebrand leftist uh, juventud peronista like back in the 70s. And she... I, I just wonder, like, again, you, you, you don't know a country as well as the people that are from it and who have lived through it. What was the dynamic that took people like that and kind of put them against that status quo? I mean, I know you, you were talking about the, the inflation and the unpredictable economics, but I was really struck by the fact that that the person who came in third is now sitting on this the, the at the top of the center-right coalition and when you read about her in her youth, she was a fiery leftist who was a, who spent time as a, a political prisoner. Is that a common arc over the last fifty years in Ar- in Argentina that people have like moved in that direction? And, and and why? Well, I don't think it's that common for people to make such drastic changes. Uh, we we do we do have a lot of politicians that you know change parties and go from one to the other, and, and because that's because also. Um, political identities have, like I said, in 2001, the, the main political parties basically exploded and they had to like reconfigure themselves and they, they reconfigure themselves by making coalitions. But those coalitions don't have very um, clear identities. And so the, the Juntos por el Cambio, which is a part the coalition to which Bullrich belongs, the, has an identity that's basically we're anti-Peronism. It does, they, they don't have many ideas in common. They don't have um, a, a platform, a program um, to, that, that, that's concrete, that's easy to understand. Um, and so their identity has been um, basically not, not only anti-Peronist, but, it, but more precisely anti-Kishnerista, you know, mm-hmm. anti-Kishner, which Kishner, let's remember the, let's um, remind the audience that Nestor Kirchner and then Cristina Kirchner, they they govern Argentina from 2003 to 2015, and so they had. And Cristina very, is still the sitting vice president at this moment, right? Yes, and she yeah. she she has a very strong leadership, and and she has and so when they run against her in 2015, their um, positioning was very was basically we are against her. And, and so the, the, the main mistake that they have done in this election was that they repeated the same, um, the, the same strategy. And today, that's not what's at stake. It's not at stake right now to end Kirchnerism. And that's what their, their proposal is, basically. We are going to finish, um, we are going to terminate with Kirchnerism, which is the same thing as we're going to terminate Peronism. 
Yeah. And just just to highlight the absurdity of Argentinian politics, and I don't know if you'll agree with me, kind of answering your question, David. So Carlos Menem, who we talked about earlier, right, this uh, neoliberal president in the 90s that did the, the conversion plan pegging the peso to the dollar. Millet says that he was the best president Argentina's ever had. He was actually a Peronist. He was actually a Peronist that came up in the 70s and 80s uh, as a as a you know not as as militant as Patricia Bullrich, but he came in through the through the left faction of the party, was pro-social welfare, was a traditional Peronist. He would actually wear his sideburns sort of like coming out from the side of his of his face uh, in, in like a kind of twist, similar to the tradi traditional caudillos that fought the Unitarian Wars in the late 1800s in Argentina as a, you know, as a populist throwback. As soon as he gets elected in the early 1990s, cuts off the, the, the little things and the, the sideburns starts wearing, you know, like a, a, a fancy suit and becomes part of what, you know, we call the Washington consensus, right? The, the Chicago boys, the Milton Friedman School of Thought, shock doctrine. Um, and yeah, you know, you, you have a lot of that, right? And, and in Argentina where people are just wildly just kind of like swinging and making coalitions and ditching their like political persona and adopting another one. And, you know, Peronismo has been very fluid uh, throughout its history, but I think you know, ultimately, its 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 political base, its center left, pro union, pro worker, kind of like social democrat, and I think it has a much yeah. more like sort of like a foundation than like the Juntos por el Cambio folks who like I, I agree with you, not all that they're just you know anti Kishnerism hysteria. Yeah. yeah, and that's why, I mean, Peronismo has basically three main ideas that, that uh, we, one is um, social justice, the other one is um, economic independence and political sovereignty. Those are the three pillars of Peronism. And so even though um, we've had presidents like Menem who had not yet followed those, those three ideas, um, those three ideas basically got the discourse and most political um, policies when parents are in, in power. And so that um, makes it much stronger in terms of identity. And that um, explains why Massa has that 35% of the vote in, in the general election, because it's a very solid um, part of the population, segment of the population. Yeah, it's it's very it's very odd to see. The thing that stuck stuck out to me is like it's very not common. I think, right, Gerald? You can keep me honest on yeah. this, but like you don't see a U.S. aligned country have an assassination attempt on a leader or a former leader very often. Yeah. It doesn't happen a little bit mm -hmm. more frequently th these days. But just last September, uh, Christina Christina Fernandez was there was a uh, uh, an attempt on her life. Um, that was captured on video. And I, I just, whenever you see something like that, you wonder like, what is going on? What is mm -hmm. the under, undercurrent of the, you know, the political sentiment in the place? Because usually it's not good, you know, for, for, for it to get to that point. Yeah, and it's incredible that that, that event, which is so, so, so serious and so grave, has not, has, has not um, 
created much more um, indignation from from the from the Argentinian people. What well, did, did right? was that a situ- was that a situation where um, did, was the you know because I can imagine that happening here in the U.S. and immediately there would be calls for denunciations on both sides of the aisle and was that a politicized event in in Argentina because I think mostly here in the U.S. Me- the the media we consumed was just the um, the the, the the chaos of it, the moment, the video, right, and the that we, we didn't really the pomp and the circumstance of it. We did, we never heard any follow up. So was it were, were the like that didn't really have political ramifications? Is that the case? Yeah, it didn't have political ramifications, and it, like I said, it's very. Uh, we have a the Ar- Argentine society is divided much more. Like I think, like the American society is divided into you know Trump haters and Trump supporters, and in, in this issue, it, it should have all been united, right? Because it's very grave. However, um, the, the 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 part of the population that hates Christina, um, they they just dismiss this as uh, well. Just this one, just one crazy guy that tried to kill her. It's a really really scary time for our country. Um, I voted uh, last week. I'm gonna be voting again on November 19 for Sergio Massa. And yeah, we're going to be doing poll watching with my mom actually in Miami. Oh. You know, oh, this, cool. is, this is how great. I mean, Hernan, we were talking about it on uh, via WhatsApp. This is how right wing. So, yeah, hoping for the best, man. I'm really, really worried about our country. Well, with that said, we'll wrap it up. I, I want to thank very much for um, the informative stuff that like I uh, you, you never have the context to talk about this stuff if it's not like in your backyard sometimes. And I re- we really appreciate Hernan you coming on and, and, and sharing your your uh, analysis with us. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank, thank you very much. much. Our next guest is Lawrence Maurer, a reporter covering the Capitol for the Tampa Bay Times, Miami Herald, Tallahassee Bureau. You can follow him on Twitter at LMauer3, that's M-O-W-E-R-3. Lawrence, welcome to Why Are We Like This? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on because we, um, you spent the first few weeks of your October reporting on this property insurance crisis, and uh, that's been, you know, uh, ever present in Florida for several years now, and it's something that we've been talking about a lot on the show. It was actually the subject guys it was the subject of our first episode wasn't it like we talked about it in our i think our very first episode yeah it's been on our minds for a little while (laughs) (laughs) on your guys's mind and in 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 my fucking life with like dealing with uh yeah with with my running uh, gag of the show david struggles with property and shit yeah (laughs) to try to get this house insured Um, what are you paying who do you have? I have citizens. I got dumped into citizens. Oh. Um, to re, to I'll, I'll rehash it for your uh, benefit, Lawrence, and for the, the the benefit of the listeners. I went through the entire force placed um, rigmarole where I was on some quasi uh, like the insurance that cannot be named. Apparently, it was like this like weird <laughs> J.P. Morgan Chase solution that they shovel you into because oh, there geez. was literally yeah, which I'm sure you've learned in your reporting. Um, there were plenty of, there were just no um, no options. There was just nobody that would insure a 90-year-old Coral Gables bungalow in oh. 2022. So, like, it just wasn't happening. Like, and, and I'm, 
far from alone. There's tens of thousands of people that are currently in that position. Uh, I, through a very weird quirk of um, the lack of oversight of citizens' insurance I, and the way that they're able to just, as a quasi public entity just make their own rules and promulgate whatever they want i was kind of locked out uh and i couldn't even get insurance from them and i had to wait several months until it had been 36 months since my oldest claim so i had to wait to time out basically it was one of these very arcane uh ridiculous things well do you want do you want something to make you feel maybe a little bit better please please i'll never say no to that yeah i found out who apparently has the most expensive citizens policy in the whole state and this is from Senator Jason Pizzo. He had it. He was paying $35,000. Oh that was God. his premium, annual oh premium. For yeah, a my, my, premi- my, premium is, my premium is, whatever, I'll throw it out there. I don't care. I'm all about transparency. My premium is about 8000 8000 a year. Yeah, so. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in Tallahassee. I've got a 1945 home, you know, and that's big single story. And it's 2200 and it's gone up. Yeah. I really can't complain. I really Tom, can't. Tomas, you've been in my house. I, I don't think you could describe it as a mansion or <laughs> like enormous. I don't have like, a, you know, I'm not running like a a jet propulsion laboratory cute, out of the back. Or you know, anything but like it's that. small. It's nice. And it's nice. nice. But it's, yeah, quaint. it's not it's a polite house. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. So, look, here's a couple of the um, for the for the benefit of our listeners. Um, if you want to go back and listen and read some of Lawrence's reporting over the beginning of the year, of the month, a uh, couple of um, a couple of headlines that grabbed our attention. One from October 10th. Florida insurance premiums might not go down, industry says. And then a week and two days later, you were writing a second one, a second article. Florida leaders blame insurance crisis on lawsuits, but evidence is thin. Go support local journalism. Support, uh, you know, subscribe to the Tampa Bay Times or the Miami Herald. Um, what really caught my attention was your most recent article, because it really felt like someone took the words right out of my brain that I had been thinking for a long time. Last year, we had heard about... Uh, all we he- all we would hear from the insurance companies was how they would just love to be doing business here in Florida. They want to stay here, but it's just too many lawsuits. The lawsuits had become endemic, which always felt to us kind of suspect because the main reason people sue is because why? Their, den- their claims are denied. And if that's the case, aren't you actually saying that the denials are endemic? And this is like a brain worm that I'd had, Lawrence, for the last year. Yeah. Um, and w- so what did what did your reporting find when you when you dug into this? Yeah, I've been hearing this too for years. I've been in Tallahassee since 2018 or 20, I guess late 2017. And insurance is one of my beats. And I've heard the same thing that, you know, it's lawsuits, it's lawsuits, it's lawsuits. This is the problem. And, you know, there is a lot, there are a lot of lawsuits. You know, the statistic you hear thrown around for years and years now is that Florida makes up somewhere between six and 10% of the nation's claims, but something like between, you know, 65 and 80% of all of the lawsuits, which is a surprising statistic. I mean, that does sound like a lot. And there's anecdotal evidence of, you know, that some lawyers have behaved poorly, you know, and done stuff that's like certainly unethical and if not illegal um, with some of these claims. But, you know, my thing was, you know, we're five years now into this crisis. And, you know, the fact that there's a lot of lawsuits is not proof that lawsuits are what is driving up the premiums and causing companies to go out of business. And so I just started asking anyone I could find, like, what, give me your best case for 
why lawsuits are driving up rates and why, like how many of these lawsuits are actually frivolous and, um, you know, give me evidence that they're, they're causing these companies to go out of business. Well, I know that they're not causing companies to go out of business because the state's own reports, the, the state does insolvency reports after each company goes under. Uh, it's required under state law and crazily, Nobody knew, I couldn't find anyone who really knew these reports existed until I wrote about it last year. Um, and they changed the law to kind of speed some of these things up. But none of these reports mention um, mention lawsuits, okay, which is pretty weird. Um, so I'm like, okay, well, are they driving up rates? And there's no evidence that they're, that the state has not produced any kind of studies or reports or anything like that, they can't say definitively rates went up by this percent, you know, X percent because of these numbers of lawsuits or these frivolous lawsuits. Um, they haven't studied how many of these lawsuits are actually frivolous. Right. And so when you, when you kind of step, take a step back, you say, okay, well, there's there are a lot of lawsuits and it seems very unusual compared to other states that we have a lot of that we have this many lawsuits. But you know, Florida's insurance market is very unusual in many ways. It's unusual in that we make up a huge outsized percentage of complaints against insurance companies. You know, um, there was a the American Policyholder Association did a study of um, federal data that showed that the top 15 insurers make up, you know, like 6% of, um, of the nation's premiums, but more than 50% of the nation's complaints. Yeah. Well, if you have a lot of complaints, you're going to have a lot of, you know, uh, you're going to have a lot of lawsuits. On top of this, the, the insurance consumer advocate uh, did a study of this back in 2020 she surveyed 7,000 policyholders. Tanisha, Tanisha Brown, I believe, or Tan uh, Carter, Tanisha yeah. Carter, yeah. Yeah, Tasha Carter. Yeah. Tasha Carter, yes. Yeah, and she reports to the CFO, Jimmy Petronas. Uh, she's a she's an appointee. But uh, she did a survey. Who's fighting, who's fighting wokeism. <laughs> That's probably company. the reason. Yeah. Tomas got a little smile on his face when he heard Jimmy Petronas. Uh, I, I, th I thought so. Uh, wokeism has not been cited for an insurance company failure either. But she surveyed all 7,000 policyholders and these policyholders, 78% of them said that, um, that they filed, the, that they hired a lawyer because they had a bad claims experience. Their claim was either delayed or denied or they didn't get paid enough. And she, she basically, she told the House Committee in 21, 2021, that, you know, these things trigger litigation. Okay, so basically what we're looking at is a situation where, yes, we have a lot of lawsuits and lawsuits probably are having some effect on rates, some effect. And you but, talk, you, you yeah. talk a little you talk about in the article about um, the sort of the dynamic behind that, where another unique part of uh, Florida in the way that Florida insurers operate is that they're not as big. They're actually smaller companies that you're not talking about your state farms or your progressives or these huge companies. And what they will do is help, help keep me honest here. I don't want to make a mistake. Yeah. They will, they will outsource the uh, key parts of the claims process. And just like you would think when outsourcing something sensitive and important like that, it gets screwed up and it ends up being 
a default uh, no. Like a lot of times, the, the, it'll just be like a, a rubber stamp letter or a l- rubber stamp response no to, to any to almost any claim, and then that tends to exacerbate the problem. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's primarily an issue after storms. I mean, this, but you're getting to really kind of the heart of the issue, which is that Florida's market is unusual in a really big way, in that in most states, the insurance market is like 80% the insurance giants that you see advertised on TV, like the ostrich and the emu and all the other animals. Um, and 20% the small companies, domestic companies you might not have heard of before. Well, in Florida, that's flipped. It's been flipped basically since Hurricane Andrew, where you have 80% of the market of these little companies that most people have never heard of and 20% of the big guys. Now, that's in itself is not unusual, but what Florida does is it, it, it with these little companies, these little companies set up sister companies and parent yep. companies, okay? And those companies charge the insurance company for fees, usually $25 per policy and something of like up to 30%, sometimes even more than 30% of all the premium dollars. So if you have $1,000 you're paying a premium, 30% potentially is going to a sister company. Now, why do they do this? They do this because insurance companies' profits are capped by regulators at usually around 4% or so. Um, But insure affiliate companies are not capped. Mm. They're not. So how do you get the money out of the insurance company that that can go to dividends, to shareholders, to buybacks, to um, bonuses, to executives, to all this stuff? You take it, the sister company takes it out, okay, like at 30% of the premium. And when the insurance company has a hard time, um, the insurance company can, you know, if I mean, they are affiliated with the sister company. The insurance company can go to the affiliate for more money. And sometimes you do see that happen. But when the insurance company goes belly up, the insurance company is on the hook. The sister company is not. It's off the hook, yeah. Exactly. This is like a, a way of limiting liability. This is like a lot of when you, you know, the difference between filing for a new LLC versus like doing business as another company. Exactly. A lot of times you'll shell yourself out and then that way. But you know that kind of gets to the, the crux that I, I want to ask you about because I I, I want to finish this when we, when we finish talking. Um, I want to finish talk. I want to end on whether or not we can, um, whether or not this is the right model, whether or not insurance even makes sense as a business model. But before we get to that, Tomas, can you like set us up a little bit with like what happened in the 2022 special session? And I, I think Lawrence will probably be yeah. able to follow up with what's, what's happened in the intervening year, whether or not that special session solved everything and made everything better. Yeah, I, I literally was about to ask that. So we're reading each other's yeah. minds. I mean, look, I, I, I did. I don't work in the special sessions. I work in immigration issues like professionally or whatever. So I'm not in the weeds of what happened in those special sessions. But I believe, Lawrence, there were two special sessions called uh, in the in the in recent years to to deal with this issue and what basically happened it resulted in a was it a two billion dollar uh, taxpayer funded bailout for these insurance companies to basically like prop them up and then of course it's the the, the you know the, the the lawsuit reform that they passed recently to take care of these so-called frivolous lawsuits that in my opinion, because I'm seeing your tweet right now, Lawrence, you say what are factors 
of, of insolvencies, according to the report, are improper management, improper transactions with affiliates or subsidiaries, which we've gone over, and natural disasters. So when you have this like mix of both improper management and like natural disasters putting so much pressure into the property insurance market, of course you're going to have a lot of lawsuits because people are fucking pissed off about their house, their claims not being paid and about, about the company being mismanaged. So in my opinion, I don't have any hard data, but that's what's driving up the, the lawsuits. But going back to what you asked, David, yeah, they basically gave, you know, a, a, a bailout to these insurance companies without any sort of like, as I understand it, meaningful regulation or reform uh, of the market in Florida. Lest, lest anybody think that we're just being some like like wingnut lefties mm -hmm. calling it. Uh, yeah, left left wing icon Donald Trump called it a bailout mm -hmm. as well, as as Lawrence mentioned in his in his report. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, you're you're right. And so yeah, the the the, the two billion dollars you mentioned was actually three billion, and he, they didn't necessarily go to insurance companies. What basically it was doing was offering reinsurance yes. to some of these companies. And hardly anyone used it because that was a savings that was supposed to be passed on to consumers. If you tapped into that program, you had to pass the money on to consumers. And of course, hardly anyone tapped into it. They didn't need it. But, but basically, these little companies are highly dependent on reinsurance. So basically, they are paying for insurance to pay out storm claims. <laughs> so if you're an insurance company, you're paying your insurance company to insure your yeah. house. The insurance company buys insurance for itself to pay your right. claim if your home is is damaged by a storm. And it's a, it's I mean basically these companies are extremely vulnerable to whims in this reinsurance market which is completely unregulated and these companies are global. A lot of them are in Bermuda, a lot of them are in Europe. They're unregulated and the rates have gone way up, way more than like I talked to an insurance executive, he estimated that litigated claims, you know, lot claims where there's a, a, a lawyer on it are about 20% of every premium dollar, while where reinsurance is between 30 and 40%. And really, reinsurance for a lot of these companies is closer to 50% of every premium dollar. So when reinsurance rates go up, that really hurts them. It hurts them way more than litigation does. But you haven't heard any kind of talk about, um, you know, what to do about reinsurance really. Like this is kind of everybody's just kind of throwing their hands up, but that's like a backstop, really. I mean, that's the that's the 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 foundation that if you're going to pursue a insurance scheme in as mm -hmm. as your way of look, things are going to get knocked down, things are going to break, we're going to get a million storms. If our solution for it is an insurance, a free market insurance a free market of insurance, then there has to be a backstop like that. And it, it, at some point, you also have to wonder is the private as a private sector um, venture, is it profitable enough to satisfy the investors and the people who are behind it? Is is the is the the mission of indemnifying property in the peninsula of Florida a profitable venture? Or not? Well, that's the that's the question. Under this this affiliate structure, it's highly profitable. I've actually got a story coming out. Um, I mean, maybe tomorrow uh, that gets into details about one of these startup companies. Um, and that, oh, they're highly profitable. They're advertising a 174% rate of return. Um, uh, so they can be incredibly profitable, but you hit on the bigger issue, which is, is it sustainable? 
Yeah. And what we found yeah. are the, these little companies are just not sustainable. When you're taking out 30% of the premium dollar, some of that, you know, I would say maybe in many cases, most of that 30% of the premium dollar is not going to any real services. It's going to profits. Um, and there have, you know, you, since they passed all this litigation reform in the last sessions, you're starting to see Republican lawmakers start to panic, realizing that it didn't work or it hasn't worked yet. And it probably won't work in the long run. And so they're talking about different ideas. And I wrote about an idea that uh, last year about um, that the people came up during the last insurance crisis. That people, most people forget that there was a this exact same story, the same story played out in between 2005, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay, where you had a major insurance crisis, you had companies going under. Guess what? Also, you saw you saw companies going out of business because they were stripping money out of the companies. Um, but in any case, there was an idea floated then that Republicans took seriously and State Farm and Allstate, all the big insurance companies were in favor of this. And the idea was, instead of paying your windstorm premium to a, to a company, you would pay your windstorm premium to the state. The state would collect all the windstorm premium premiums. So basically 100% of it is basically owned by the citizens of Florida or homeowners, okay? And that pool of money would be available to pay out after storm claims. And, you know, basically, instead of stripping profits out of the premium dollar, you just take it to the state um, and you would still deal with your insurance company. You know, they would be the ones handling your claim, your homeowner's claim and whatnot. But that I mean, people agreed at the time that the math worked and it's right. not an unprecedented model. California does this for hurricane insurance. Texas also has the Texas Windstorm Association, which operates kind of the same way. And Texas is not really done well with the Windstorm Association, I hear, but it's a model where basically the math works. And by now, this pool of money would have been more than $100 billion if they had enacted it back in 2010. But, you know, even though Allstate and State Farm are on board with this, because they don't want the risk of the, the reason why Allstate, State Farm, the big boys are not here in the state to the to the extent they should be because they don't want to take on the risk from windstorm. Right. Yeah. They can insure fire and theft all day long because that's what, I mean, the rest of the country doesn't have windstorm premiums like we do. You know, I mean, Texas, Oklahoma, states like that do, but, you know, most states don't. They just have fire and theft. State Farm and Allstate are fine with that, but it came down to politics is what killed it. Basically, the domestic insurance companies, the 80% that dominate the market here, they killed it. They lobbied it and said, this is basically going to kill our profits. You know, they, they, they can't compete with Allstate and State Farm on fire and theft coverage, you know, which basically is what they would do. They'd still make some money, but they wouldn't be nearly as profitable. And you're starting to see, I expect a bill on this topic to be filed this coming session to at least look at this. But there's ideas out there that, that you know, the math works, whether they're politically viable is a totally different issue. But there, I, I feel like there are solutions. But the theme of that story that I had last week was basically that the state hasn't studied it. The state's done no studies, basically, none on this entire topic. How is that possible? Which, is, that's, yeah, it, which says a lot, right? How is that possible? That was... Like, how is they, that they don't hold hearings. They don't do studies. This is starting to feel a lot to me the way that it felt about, I think it was like 12 or 13 years ago 
when there started to be a lot of manipulation and capping of information that was even collectible about um, about uh, guns. It reminds me yeah. of that. I don't know if you if you all remember that, but there was a point where gun data looked so bad for one particular political side of the aisle that the solution was, well, let's make it illegal to collect that data and like make sure that nobody finds that out. And yeah. uh, you brought up the, the Texas windstorms, and I'm glad you did because that reminded me in your story that there were when they tried to do an apples to apples comparison uh, you can explain this better than i can obviously but there was huge missing gaps of of uh, what other states are reporting what types of disasters were being reported and huge sets of of of, of consumer data that didn't appear and made it very difficult to figure any of this out right yeah that's the issue is that you know as uh, I, I quoted P senator pizzo in that story telling the insurance commissioner like we get more information on ufos in the last year than we've gotten on Florida's insurance market. We can't, like, I, seriously, we have, we don't even know the most basic information. What's the average premium paid in Florida? The Office of Insurance Regulation doesn't release that. You know, that comes from a, a third party insurance information institute. You know, we don't even know, like, how much did premiums go up on average? Well, Lawrence, how is that? I mean, like, there's a lot of, yeah. Is it on purpose? Like, are they trying to hide the data? Is it just like negligence? Like. How is this possible? It's a combination of all these things. It's basically um, incompetence. And you have a state legislature that's not, it's lost. You know, if you look at the last insurance crisis, there were all kinds, I mean, it was, again, Republicans were in control. They controlled both chambers and the governor's office. And there was a lot more curiosity. There was a lot more holding uh, insurance, they held hearings. I mean, I've got a, a binder somewhere here of work product from the insurance committees back in, in 2010, 2011. And it's a binder like this thick of materials describing the history of the insurance crisis, the motivating factors. None of that exists this time. Yeah. None of it exists. Nobody's done any work at all on this. And the one thing that they have done, the legislators did do is they started requiring in 2021 for insurance companies to start reporting more information on their litigation to the state. Sounds perfectly reasonable if they're crying about how litigation is the problem. Well, they want to be what? able to, yes, yeah, support when they hit that. The when the deadline came, 71% of the companies submitted no data, literally nothing. They submitted a zero. And, and another 18% were, were late on it. So we still don't have any release of this information. So when they gave these three trillion dollars, right? That was incorrect. Two, not two, three trillion that we were mm -hmm. just talking about. They basically billion. called these, billion. Yeah, sorry, billion, <laughs> billion. Yeah. That's too much. Right? Yeah, they called these two special sessions. Gave these three billion dollars. They did this without any like of the research, any of the studies, you know, that you would you know need in hand yeah. to do this. Like they just basically were like. Let's build a plane as we're flying it, folks. <laughs> let, let, let me give you an exa another example. We mentioned the Tasha Carter survey. Tasha Carter, like nobody, I'd never heard of this survey until I started reporting for this last story. I'd never heard of this data and I've been desperate for any kind of data. This is an industry that thrives on data. <laughs> it exists because of data, you know, insurance. It's all based on projections and modeling and all this kind of stuff. And yet there's none of it. Tasha Carter gave us a presentation in 2021 to a House committee where she briefly mentioned this survey, but she never gave the survey in the Senate. Lobbyists I spoke to, lawmakers I, I talked it. to, yeah. they'd never seen this. 
a survey of 7,000 people who'd hired a lawyer? Like that is really, really good information to have if you're going to be deciding whether or not to make it much, much harder and more expensive to sue your insurance company, right? But the, you see that this is a repeat. I'm reading a book right now about the medical malpractice crisis. There's been three medical malpractice crises since the 70s where it's the same exact arguments. It's always trial lawyers versus insurance companies. The trial lawyers say, oh, we're policing the industry. And the you know insurance companies say, oh, you're driving up rates and driving away doctors or whatever. Well, the Cato Institute... Uh, came out with this huge, I mean, not a, not a liberal bastion of a, Ger- a Gerald's employer. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> not, not, I mean, again, Koch brothers founded, right? Um, but they came out with a huge study, uh, a really good book about the, examining the medical malpractice crises and found that the insurance company's claims were all bogus. There wasn't yeah. any evidence for them. None. They also concluded that the trial lawyers did a terrible job of actually policing the industry too. But it, it, when we're talking about like these claims and the fact there's no data to back it up beyond the fact that there's a lot of lawsuits, I mean, we, it, that's a problem. That's a problem. They haven't studied this. I mean, just to, just to try to thread the needle on, you, you brought up earlier the, um, the rate of profit, um, the executive pay. I think in your article you had there was an executive making twice as much as the CEO of State Farm. The tension that creates with the um, the price of insurance. It seems like what is unsustainable is the rate of profitability. If everything that you're saying about um, the the small affiliate firms is true, to the point where now people are having to, we worry about, oh, well, if we make it unhospitable to companies, the companies will leave. Well, if you make it unhospitable to insurance payers, the insurance payers are going to exit the yeah. state because they won't be able to afford to live in Florida anymore. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And yeah, it's it's staggering. In, in you know, between 2005 and 2017, there were no storms, no hurricanes, no named hurricanes. And this was an era of incredible profitability for these little- They were renting it in. It was basically a license to burn money. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned the you know this little domestic insurance company in Florida um, was, you know the CEO was making more than twice the CEO of State Farm, despite having like 0.01% the number of policies as State Farm or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever it was. It was a ridiculously tiny number, but that wasn't unusual. I mean, a lot of these domestic companies have, you know, relatives on the payroll getting yeah. stuff. They pay a lot in dividends. And when you when these forensic accountants have gone, gone in and turned over the books, when these companies fail, they repeatedly find these inappropriate transactions between the affiliate companies and the insurance company, where like in one case, the the auditors wrote that the executives were, quote unquote, stripping the company of right. cash as it was right. going down. I mean, others were paying dividends, mean, you know, regardless of how, if the company was profitable, like how, like, you know, there's basically been no scrutiny on this industry for the last 15 years, pretty much. And now we're maybe starting to wake up to that a little bit. To, To try to put it like a bow on it. They, they say that the, um, the crisis is due to litigation, even though there's no proof. So they put a cap on litigation. But it's very possible that the crisis is due to the, the to the cash stripping by these affiliate companies, and we actually don't, we actually don't know very much about it that at all. Yeah, don't you finish that thought, Gerald? Don't you dare finish yeah. that thought. No, and the legislature, like, I'll, just to 
tied up. The legislature actually tried to to take a look at these affiliate uh, uh, finances, the finances of these companies in the last special session, or actually in this past session in, in April. And they decided not to do it. It was in the bill. They had it in the bill to look at this stuff. And they stripped it out because uh, this the, uh, the, the the bill sponsor told me they didn't want to upset the apple cart of the industry because this is no, the cash cow of the industry. This mm-hmm. is how you lure investors. How they, yep. You know, is, is how you, is these, this weird structure. And of course, all of this, uh, all of this happens as, um, you know, the context that we have to mention is that a, a small tropical storm overnight turned into a category five uh, hurricane and devastated Acapulco, a city, you know, not, not, on the global scale, not that far away from us. You know, we're ending up this hurricane season with a look at, you know, what could be in store for the future. And uh, it, it's scary to think that this is the the safety net that we have. But um, I, I want to thank our guest, Lawrence Maurer, who's a reporter, again, covering the Capitol for the Tampa Bay Times, Miami Herald, Tallahassee. You should follow him on Twitter. He is at lmauer 3 um, Lawrence, thanks for coming on and talking about this with yeah, us. Yeah, thanks really for having me, guys. It. Thank you.